This is the Life of Jesus podcast with Ben Greenbaum and Mark Elsesser. For a full year, we're looking at the life teachings and works of Jesus from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, put together in one chronological flow. We've been walking through the life of Jesus with him these past weeks, and now on week 23, we're looking at Jesus' ministry in the Decapolis. Last, last time we looked at his ministry in Tyre and Sidon, which was sort of northwest of the Sea of Galilee, and now he comes back and sails to the side, and he's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, where he'd spent so much of his time, and the, the Sea of Galilee is like a dividing line. On the west side was Jewish territory. On the east side was Gentile territory, non-Jewish territory. And so it says, we're, we're, we're going to do it in Mark 7, at the end of Mark 7 and Mark 8 today. Mark 7, verse 31, then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. I don't know exactly where they were in the Decapolis, but you know, I, I think the last time Jesus was on that side of the lake, they ran him off because he had he had healed the man who was the naked crazy guy in the cemetery, and the people said, "Get away from us." So Jesus goes right back. Now he might be in a different community. Decapolis means. 10 cities. We live near Indianapolis, so we live, the word polis means city, Deca is 10, so it's 10 cities. And I don't know if it was the same place, but certainly the word spread, you would think, that this guy came and ruined our pig farm, and we got him out of here. But he's back. And even though there was the news spread that people had sent him away, when they heard him come back, I don't know if it was because he, he healed that guy who had lived in the cemetery or other things or word was just spreading all over the place, but there were some friends of this man who was deaf and could hardly talk. There were some people, it says, who brought him to Jesus. So I, I just am thinking about that, like even though things spin around about Jesus of who he is and who his identity is and what kind of person he was, and they'd cast him out from their, their, their community, he goes back either into their community or one of the, the cities in the, in the region there, and people wanted to come to him anyway. Okay. Walk me through that a little bit about like listening to others or being desperate for Jesus. There's, there's like a piece in there to me that's, that's striking where he'd gotten run out, and now these other friends say, we want you to do for our friend what you did for the guy who used to live in the cemetery. Yeah. The other thing that we see, too, in this is we see this contrast between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and then the people who are coming to Jesus. You know, in uh, last week we talked about the Pharisees you know, who came up from Jerusalem. So they're coming to Jesus to question him. Uh, they're, they're coming uh, to him to engage him in some ways in their own minds, probably to expose his lack of righteousness. And then 
on the flip side, you have all these folks running to Jesus who are either uh, wrestling with some sort of physical ailment that they want healing uh, for, or they're they're wrestling with sin and and they uh, they want forgiveness. And so you see this this crazy contrast between uh, the teachers of the law and the people, um, both coming to Jesus, but with completely different objectives. But yeah, I, I would think that Jesus having miraculously healed this man, I'm sure the word spread like wildfire as the, the, the word had spread all around uh, these regions. And so whether it's, uh, you know, the, the Greek woman um, from last week or uh, now these folks bringing uh, this uh, deaf man who could hardly talk uh, to Jesus, uh, knowing of his compassion, knowing of his power, uh, knowing of his his love to others, they come running to him with their needs, their brokenness. They couldn't stop the word from spreading, right? I mean, like no. pe- people that were against him or sending him away from their community, they they could not stop the word from spreading about what was happening. Because yeah. we have these passages where it says he spent the whole day healing people, and they're, they're not named. We right. don't know from what. It's like it's a throwaway passage, like the whole day healing everybody that was brought to him. So certainly the news spread like wildfire. And these guys, just like the the guys who brought the guy to the, the roof and lowered him down, these guys were desperate for their friend yeah, because they wanted him to be able to hear and yeah. to be able to talk. So Jesus does something to me that's a little strange. I, I don't want to say weird because he's Jesus, but it's just, it's just strange to me. And it's in verse 33 after he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. All right. Ben. So, you know, a lot of times Jesus is healing from a distance. He's not even in the same community. And he says, go back home. You'll find your, your person, your loved one healed. Or, he, or somebody touches the edge of his garment and they're healed or he says a word and they're healed. So what's up? I mean, he's sticking his fingers inside the guy's ears and then spitting and touching the man's tongue in order for him to be able to hear and speak well. Is this an object lesson or you, you got any, you got anything on this for me? I have nothing. <laughs> I've got a big bag of nothing. Have you ever tried this with somebody that was no. desperate? No, I, I have not. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think I'm going to go uh, that route. You think uh, we should have a soon. think we should have a, a service one of these days for like bring your ears and your tongue and Ben will reenact this. <laughs> oh, that'll send people running for sure. It it just seems it seems kind of <laughs> bizarre based upon some of the other ways he did things. But you know, Jesus is always wanted to capture people's attention maybe. Yeah. It, I guess he wouldn't have had to do it because we've, we've seen him be able to heal from all kinds of, of ways, but he, he chose to, to do it in this way. It's like that, you know, the time he put mud in the guy's eyes and told him to wash, like right. he does different things at different times, doesn't he? Yeah. And I, I, maybe it's just a, an attention grabber. Uh, maybe somebody else can help, help the two of us with that who really don't fully get why he would do that. But then it says in verse 34, he looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh, he said to him, and I don't know if I'll be able to pronounce this right, Ephatha, which means be opened. 
That's all the words. Be opened. Those are powerful words to me. Words that Jesus, I believe, wants to speak to us. Mm. Whether it's our ears or our mouth. To be able to hear and speak physically or to hear and speak for him. Whether it's our mind or heart. Be opened. It's a powerful word that I believe if we take them, those two words by faith, that our lives will be changed for him. This guy's life was changed in verse 35. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Verse 36 Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. How does that work when Jesus commands them? Don't say a word. The opposite happened. I wonder why he kept saying it. <laughs> like, like, don't tell anybody. Um, the more he said, don't, it's like your, your, your kids, don't touch this, it's hot. And the first thing they want to do is touch it to see if it's truly hot. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. The more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So word is traveling about who Jesus is and what he's doing and what he's up to. And he, so he stays in that area. He stays in the region of the Decapolis. He stays in Gentile territory. And we get in Mark chapter 8. If you're following along, flip the page to, to Mark chapter 8. And it's the story of the feeding of the 4,000. Now, we've already had the feeding of the 5,000. We didn't spend much time talking about that. There's the feeding of the 5,000, I'm sorry, on the Jewish side of the lake. And now there's the feeding of the 4,000 on the Gentile side of the lake. The common denominator in all of that is Jesus. But the also that like the common I don't know if they were the variable, yeah, but they were the common the disciples. The disciples were in both locations. You'd think they would have gotten it, right? But in Mark chapter eight, during those days another large crowd gathered. Again, we're on the Gentile side, the region of Decapolis. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. There was some real ministry going on to stick around for three days and not eat. You know, I know this, that by the time that we spend an hour in the worship service, people are tapping the top of their watch and like, come on, let's get going. I got to get me a donut. I've got to get some lunch, right? And so there's some significant ministry for three days with nothing to eat and he said in verse three, if I send them home hungry, they will collapse on their way because they'd walked there from far away. Down in verse four, his disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? All right. The disciples had recently experienced him feeding 5,000 men and their wives and children with a happy meal. So, so how is it they are clueless 
when he again has a massive crowd with him and he says, we got to feed them. Yeah, I think we're all given uh, to this in, in one form or another. It seems odd because they've experienced this incredible, I mean, insane miracle that Jesus, you know, fed 5,000. There's clearly, uh, though, a lot of people there, obviously, with the 4,000. I mean, he fed over 5,000, just 5,000 men. And so you hear you have, you know, a similar dynamic. You would think that they'd all be like, hey, go grab him some loaves. He's got this. It's going to be all right, you know. but. We do the same thing. I'm like, we've experienced, we live on the other side of Jesus's supernatural resurrection. And yet I think of the the doubt we have uh, when we consider the power of what God can do, um, whether in our lives, in our church, whatever it might be. And so we, we fall victim to the same thing. But yeah, it, it's crazy, right? I mean, he just fed, you know, probably 10,000 plus people. You would just, again, expect them to like, we got a piece of bread over here. It's all good. No big deal. Yeah, do it again. Yeah. We, we, we believe you can do it, but they'd already forgotten. I, I love what you just said, that we, we should know better. We live on the other side of the resurrection. We live on this side of the promised Holy Spirit yeah. who dwells with us and in us, who promises us all of the authority of Christ, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and, and all that, and much more. And we sometimes act like we're powerless yeah. to affect any change in the world or even our own lives. So maybe that's a a good a good word for all of us that even though we know better, we can tend to fall back on the the reality or the scarcity in life. Mm. And these disciples are just like from a scarcity mentality rather than an abundance mentality. Look, we're we're like we're in a remote place. Yeah. We, yeah, you know, I've been in a few remote places in, in the world where there's just like, there's nothing around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you've kind of gone from big city to big city, right? Like New Orleans and Dallas and Indianapolis area. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a suburb of New Orleans, but New Orleans was nearby. Yeah. I lived in Dallas, you know, lived outside Indianapolis. I did minister in a more rural community uh, in Trafalgar, which is on the south side of Indianapolis, about 20 miles south. And, uh, and spent a lot of time as a kid uh, in rural communities. Um, but yeah, yeah. And I've been in really remote places uh, globally. Um, but I, so I, I know, I mean, I, I think about uh, one community I served in, their only grocery store in that community was a mom and pop grocery store that then shut down. And there was an empty Burger King that just sat there for the seven years that I was in that community. There was an empty Burger King in there, which you would, qualifies pretty much their city center and it wasn't the only vacant building you know so businesses unable to be sustained nothing much there so much for have it your way huh <laughs> so that's so like that there's a remote place here and and that's all they can see is the remote place yeah all they can see is the scarcity all they can see is i'm not able to do this so Jesus interacts with them. How many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he feeds them. You can read through the rest of the story yourself. He, he multiplies it once again. And just like he'd done on the Jewish side of the lake, now on the Gentile side of the lake, he, he feeds all the people. And then in verse 10, he, he gets up with his disciples and goes back across to the Jewish side of the lake. And when he gets there in verse 11, the Pharisees came 
and began to question Jesus to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Really? On that side of the lake, he'd fed 5,000 men and their families. On the other side, which they could probably see the crowds, maybe, I mean, it may have been farther away. He'd just fed 4,000 of the families. He'd been healing people right and left. He'd been doing all these amazing miracles. And they're saying, can you show us a sign from heaven to prove you are who you say you are? I just find it weird that they they just couldn't get it. They they wouldn't get it perhaps. They they wouldn't see who he was. And so we we get down to verse 14, I mean Mark chapter 8. And this is I think great because they begin to get in the boat again. He's going to cross the the water again. And in verse 14 the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we just went through this. He fed 5,000, he fed 4,000, and now there's 12, and they'd forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. If, if he fed 5,000 with five loaves, and if he fed 4,000 and their families with seven loaves, and there's only 12 of them with one loaf, why this line that they'd forgotten to bring bread except for the one loaf? I mean, are are we back like same song, second verse with these guys or now third verse or 12th verse? Like what is, what's up with the disciples? Like these guys are going to lead the church. They feel like they're as clueless as I am. Yeah. I mean, and that's the persistent, uh, a, a persistent issue throughout the, uh, throughout the the gospel accounts um where they just in some ways again they still have this mindset of what the who the messiah is what that means for them and it it just persistently blinds them even to the point where we see these moments where you've got this where like yeah we've got a loaf we're good you know he can he can you know he can feed us 12 he just fed four you know four thousand plus people uh we're gonna be okay um or even to the point where, you know, you see them at different points correcting Jesus, you know, Jesus telling them that he's going to die and raise again. And Peter saying, you know, that'll never happen. Um, maybe, maybe it was just really good bread and they didn't want to share it with each other. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, wife, I, I would kill for good bread. bread. Yeah. It's really, I mean, it's, it is delicious when she makes it. And, and, uh, you know, I kind of go into the hoarder mentality on that a little bit, you know, uh, keep, you know. There's some good good breads out there, right? I, I don't know what's going on. But he goes on to say this in verse 15. Jesus is aware of what's going on in their minds. He says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed it with one another and said, is it because we don't have enough bread? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Dudes, like, haven't you paid attention to what he said in the past about yeast and its sin and how it grows in your life and the hypocrisy that he's been talking with the Pharisees and watch out for that? And they're thinking, uh, I don't have enough bread. <laughs> it's the Pharisees' uh, yeast and Herod's yeast that don't don't make good bread. It does. Isn't it like comforting to know that that the guys who led the church and launched it are are just like they're really human. They're very normal people. 
who, I mean, we're, we're now not very far away from when they're leading the church. It's probably less than a year. I, I, I haven't like studied when this passage might've taken place, but they still struggling with what is going on and what Jesus is talking about. And if they have the faith to believe it. So in verse 17, aware of their discussion, because they thought, is it because we have no bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? It's a harsh word. Mm-hmm. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 on the Jewish side, how many baskets full did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000 on the Gentile side of the lake, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? And he doesn't really go on to give the explanation, right? Is it? It's not there, is it? He didn't give an explanation. Like he just says, "Don't you understand?" And then we're left to figure it out on our own. Yeah, I don't know for sure, but these numbers seem to be highly symbolic. That Jesus is saying, "You didn't pick up twelve basketfuls on the Jewish side for no reason." Twelve is a significant number for the Jewish people. Twelve tribes of Israel the 12 disciples, and, and, and on and on. And he's, I think he's demonstrating on that Jewish side that he was the Jewish Messiah for the people of Israel. Because we had just seen recently when he said, I, I came first for the lost sheep of Israel. And that's who he was. And then what about the seven basketfuls that were gathered in non-Jewish territory? Well, maybe they they demonstrated symbolically that Jesus was the Messiah, not just for the Jewish people, but for all the Gentiles as well. Over in in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, this is when God was using Moses to remind the people that they were going to enter the promised land. And he said, When the Lord your God brings you into the land— you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations and they're named here in Deuteronomy 7.1. The Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. The Israelites never drove these nations out, really. So those seven nations remained in and around them all the time. And I just wonder if this is symbolic, a symbolic reference back to that Deuteronomy passage when the people were getting ready to end the, enter the promised land and make it Jewish territory, when Jesus said, look, I didn't just come for people who were Jewish by blood, by descent, but I came for all people, Gentiles alike, even those that you perceive to be your enemies who are right around you. Don't really know. You got any like thoughts on the 12 and the 7 and these numbers? And 
Yeah, the twelve uh, usually, especially within the gospel accounts, would you know there's there's a reason that there's twelve apostles. There's a re- you know, and part of that does it points back to uh, the twelve tribes. Um, that makes perfect sense. I you know honestly, outside of seven being one of those numbers of what we would call like completion or or whatever that's depicted in New Testament, I hadn't ever thought about it, but that makes that makes perfect sense. Um, so yeah, that, that, that sounds, that's, that's a piece of real insight there. Well, and it, it also could be that, that the power of those numbers, like 12 and seven, what you're, you're referencing as well. I, I really don't know for sure, but it's just interesting. He says, do you still not understand? And we don't get the explanation. So we are left to speculate what these, these numbers meant and why he was, you know, I wonder if like in the boat they go, oh, well, yeah, and slap their foreheads. I get it. Or if they were like, don't ask any more questions. <laughs> we, we still have no idea what he's talking about. But uh, uh, kind of like us right now, we're speculating and wondering about that. Yeah, no, you know, this Sunday is um, Mother's Day. You got any Mother's Day traditions that uh, are, are a big deal for you and, and Sherry or, or your, your own mothers or anything like that? Uh, brunch is always a big player. And then, uh, and then actually one of the things for Mother's Day every year that I get, uh, Sherry and part of it is, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a means for us to, uh, I don't know, the, the plants become symbolic, uh, to us of, uh, of my own, uh, Jewish heritage. But every year on Mother's Day, there's a nursery I go to on the South side of Indianapolis and I get this huge, uh, hanging, wandering Jew, uh, plant. And we always have one uh, at our house uh, throughout the summer. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It is. I, like I don't know. We're we're big on tradition. Like but yeah, that. we're going. Uh, yeah, brunch is always a uh, a huge player. Which my youngest uh, thinks that brunch is the the greatest thing known to man. Brunch buffet is the greatest thing known to man. <laughs> How about that? That's what it's all about. That's Mother's Day about. every week for her, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, on Easter. On Easter Sunday, a couple weeks ago, we or a few weeks ago now, we uh, uh, a family at church took my wife was working, and a family at church took us to go have brunch uh, with them at a really really nice restaurant on top of a building in Indianapolis. And my youngest thought she was, you know, like the American princess. I mean, she thought she ate it up. She was like, "Daddy," she sat down at the head of the table and said, "This is the nicest restaurant." I have ever been to, and then she saw the spread, the buffet spread, and that was it. I mean, she she's like, we need to do this every week after church. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to have to go get a third and fourth job, and I'm like, be <laughs> thankful to Mr. John because he's paying for this right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, we, we um, wish everybody to have a happy Mother's Day at the end of this week and spend time with the one who raised you and nurtured you and continues to love you. Next week, we'll be diving into some more of this. We'll be looking at how Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for his own death and resurrection. If you want to jump in deeper, go to our church's website, fishersumc.org, or our church app and click on the Life of Jesus link. That'll take you to more elements in this year-long study of the life of Jesus And you can follow along with that. God bless you and have a great week.